This is a recording made in the chapel of the open book, and it is number one of a series of studies in the book of Nehemiah. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together, and those of you who are listening, if you care to join us, will you turn for a moment or two to Daniel, the ninth chapter. I can imagine someone either sitting listening to me now or picking up the tape recording presently and saying, why Nehemiah? Well, of course, we might respond, well, why not? Uh, Because we subscribe to this statement that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. And uh, if we only know a few selected books, uh, we shall be thereby deficient. Just the same as some people who never eat this and never eat that. Well, they're living, but they might live a bit more generously if they weren't so particular. And also, there's another feature about it that from Daniel the ninth chapter, you gather that it's an important point somewhere in the story to be able to peg down and say, this was the troublous time, this was the time when they built the wall, and from that edict which sent those people back to restore a desolate Jerusalem, we can compute the coming of the, of the Messiah, we can look for the end, and we can see that it's far-reaching in its bearing. Not one of us can be quite independent then of this record, even from the prophetic point of view. But there are other points of view. We go to, say, the Gospel according to John, for its simple, as we call it, Gospel, John 3.16, and we do so rightly. We go to the Epistle to the Romans, where we want the great basis of the Gospel that was preached by the Apostle Paul, the just shall live by faith. We go to the Epistle to the Ephesians, of course, I must bring that in, mustn't I, for all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. And yet, what should we know of John's Gospel? What should we know of the Epistle to the Romans? What should we know of the Epistle to the Ephesians if all the rest of the Bible were a closed book to us? The more we read of one book, the more we depend upon another to supplement and give us chapter and verse for this or that or the other. And so, I'm not making an apology, except in the real meaning of the word apology. I'm not apologising, but I'm explaining the reason why it's necessary for us to be acquainted with some of these stranger books, so that we shall be all round fitted for the work that God has given us. When I read, for instance, the Apostle Paul cites certain opponents, he says, as Jans and Jabries withstood Moses, so do these resist the truth. Well, he could have just as said, as Sandalot and Tobiah withstood Nehemiah, so do these resist the truth. Because, you see, all through the scripture, there is an evidence that there's a battle on, and there's an insidious foe, and his realm is in the realm of what we call religion. I don't think Satan is out to make people wicked. He's out to make people have no room for Christ. And if he could bring the millennium here with peace and safety, it would suit his book, but he cannot, for the moral thing walks together. And so the one cannot be without the other. And this book of Nehemiah touches us at many points. We have a man of outstanding character. A man who you couldn't really intimidate. A man who could say, and I say, I think, say in the presence of God, should such a man as I flee? And sometimes there's a need that God should raise up those who 
as we often quote from the the testimony of the Apostle Paul that he yielded subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue right through to us. And we are told in our own epistle about the wiles of the devil, and we are warned that we are not to be ignorant of his devices. And in this book of Nehemiah we see some of his devices. First of all, they ridicule, then they intimidate, then somebody marries one of their daughters. Oh, it's all going on all the time, continuously. So that I think for the time we've given Nehemiah an opportunity to speak to us, if we've got any hesitation at this present moment of thinking we're wasting our time, I think when we got to it we'll say, well, I'm glad we did, because it's, it's almost up to date. And that is one of the reasons why I bring it before you. The goal before uh, Nehemiah is very near to the goal that was before us when we started the witness in this building. Seventeen years ago, we changed the name of this chapel from the Wilson Street Baptist Chapel to the Chapel of the Opened Book. And the goal in the book of Nehemiah is there on that seventh month when the law of the Lord was discovered and Ezra stood upon a pulpit of wood and opened the book. So we've got something in common, haven't we? And just as surely as we have something in common with a desire to open the book, so we shall find there's plenty in common for people to shut us up if they can. They did their utmost, but by the mercy of God they were defeated. Now it will do us a great deal of good to see the two sides. The way in which Nehemiah was held up and sustained, and the way in which these enemies adopted different tactics but having one object only in front of them, to cause the work to cease. It's very suggestive as we go through the story, the different ways in which they sought to stop the work. There was one that always appeals to me. We shall look at it in detail. They said, you stuck in that little place up there, you're wasting your talents nearby. Come down into the plain and let's have a conference. And of course you can understand that it would be a great temptation for me not to say, oh no, for that's the name of the conference. Down in the plain of, oh no. Of course, Nehemiah didn't speak English, so he wouldn't have thought of it. But you and I can. You remember when you were told that you're wasting your talents because you're not going to broaden out here and widen out there. Say, somebody else had the same temptation and, oh no, will be the answer. So I think we're going to have this book before us for a few. I'm not going to lengthen it out, but to make its message speak so that we may appreciate it as, as um, I think we shall. I'll commence by reading a little bit from a magazine that you may have heard of called The Brian Expositor. And this is uh, volume 34 and it was written in the year 1947. These notes and comments on Nehemiah were written at a time when the witness connected with the Berean Expositor was in the state of transition. Now that was referring to earlier still, you see. Like me and Nehemiah, we too have had open letters. There's an open letter sent in Nehemiah, it's up to date, isn't it? There was one open letter sent that was doing a tremendous lot of damage to our work. And an open letter is a thing you don't know what to do with. The person has signed his name and given you his address. And I found that this open letter was coming back to me from America. I just 
look to the Lord to guide me, I didn't know what to do. And then I went to take a meeting somewhere, I'm not going to say where, because I'm not going to implicate anybody else in this. And I spoke to one of the friends at the meeting, and he said, oh, and he went like this, and he pulled the paper out of his pocket, and he said, oh, now that's the letter of old so-and-so. Would you believe it? Would you believe it? That Vince! I said, old so-and-so, I've got him. I never told him I wouldn't get him involved. I let a month go by, and then I wrote, and I thought, if I'm wrong, won't I get a solicitor's letter back? I never heard another word, and the open letter stopped. On another occasion, I had a letter from an editor of an expository magazine. I think he was a bit peeved by the, the fact that I criticised something he said, which I have a right to do. He said he'd got two columns of printed for his magazine, all set up, and the subject was my morals. Now I said to one who ought to know something about my morals, oh, what can he say? Well, that lady didn't quite know. So do you know what I did? I wrote to him. I said, it often occurs that when we've written a subject, it doesn't quite fill the space. If you happen to have an inch or two left, write to me and I'll give you a bit more about my morals. Never heard any more about that. That's the only way to deal with this intimidation. It's not Christian, it's simply an attempt on the evil one to cause the work to cease. I could have told him some things about my morals that he didn't know. That would have been very interesting for his people, but he never gave me the opportunity. So there it is. So I'll just go on reading this little introduction. Like me and Nehemiah, we too have had open letters. We too have experienced the wearisome effect of much rubbish. When we read Nehemiah, we find they began to flag. The tremendous desolation. Well, you and I have passed through places, haven't we, friends? In the vicinity of this chapel, where buildings have been tumbled upon buildings. And to think of getting rid of the rubbish first before you can start with the primitive methods they may have had in those days. No wonder their hearts failed them. Well, in the same way, in a doctrinal sense, I felt baffled so many times, instead of being able to get straight on with the witness, there was this to dispose of, there was this to get rid of, and this one to explain. Much rubbish. And then, we too have received invitations to occupy a broader platform, to come down into the wide open plain, and not cramp ourselves within the prescribed limits of a prison ministry. We were particularly attracted to the thought that the goal of Nehemiah's efforts, namely the pulpit of the open book, was similar to our own. Because of this, we expected to find much in the experiences of Nehemiah that would prove a word in season to ourselves. On many critical occasions, when the policy of the work hung in the balance, we have taken heed to the counsel of Nehemiah and have never yet been disappointed and we should have to return to this book again and again. Now, with regard to the relationship of Nehemiah and Ezra, the book of Ezra comes first, the book of Nehemiah comes second. And therefore, that might prove to you that Ezra went first and built the temple, and then Nehemiah went second and built the city, which is that that was a backhanded way of doing it, wasn't it? A city in ruins, and you build a, a magnificent temple inside... No. When you read the instruction given by, Mo, uh, by God to Moses to build a tabernacle, he says, build me a tabernacle that I may dwell in it and walk with you. And the first thing that, he was, that was described 
is the mercy seat. You see, God puts that first, but that wasn't the first. You'd have to have the tabernacle built first before you could put the mercy seat in its place. And Ezra comes first in statement, but he doesn't come first in history. Nehemiah went back first and built the wall and put the gates up so that they could have some control over the place. Then, presently, Ezra receives his commission to go and build the temple and it's dedicated. And so, on this chart in front of you, we may have time to refer to it a little, but it's really complicated. I've only put it there so that those who have this tape recording shall have the benefit of the chart to be able to sit and ponder it themselves. But you will see that there are some parts of it uh, that are put together. First of all, Nehemiah, in the beginning, goes and the wall is there, the building is there to be done and the disorder is there. And then we have the uh, return under Zerubbabel in both Nehemiah 7 and Ezekiel 1. That's where it begins to overlap. As though you put the book of Ezra down on top of the book of Nehemiah and you find one or two places coincide. Well, they are in the middle of the Nehemiah, with a bit on either side extending. I leave that to speak for itself, and if you want to, to see it worked out more elaborately, you will find it in the appendix that comes at the end of that section of the Companion Bible. Well, now, I think the first thing I want to do is to read the first chapter. And I'm reading it on purpose, because we just read together Daniel the ninth chapter. <coughs> and we cannot read this first chapter, it's only 11 verses, without being conscious how these two men were so moved to say almost the same words. It's not possible that they could have looked over one another's shoulder. It's not possible that they copied one another. But the very knee was laid upon their hearts by the self-same spirit and they were prompted by that self-same spirit to put these things into words. So shall we acquaint ourselves with the way in which the book of Nehemiah opens. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. And it came to pass in the month Kislu, in the twentieth year, I was in Shushan the palace. You will find that these men were all living about the same time, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Daniel, all connected with Babylon, Medo, Persia, and the period of Israel's deportment the de uh, being taken away and the desolations of Jerusalem. I was in Shushan the palace. That Hanani, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, <coughs> and concerning Jerusalem. <coughs> and they said unto me, the remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction. You will read elsewhere that when some of these kings deported the population, they took the smiths and the carpenters and the masons and they left a lot of the people behind and were no good to them. That's that poor people that could hardly forage for themselves left behind in a desolate city. And they said unto me, the remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down and the gates thereof are burned with fire. And it came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Now you will discover that when the scriptures speak of the God of heaven it is those scriptures when Israel are in distress. You see, 
When is the God of heaven? He's away from them instead of being with them. The God of heaven comes in these minor prophets more than he comes anywhere else. And I said, and said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God. Now, Daniel said that. And yet they didn't uh, compare notes. There was something that was impressing upon their mind. And you and I do well to remember that the God of love and the God of mercy and the God of peace in the very self-same New Testament says our God is a consuming fire. It depends on whether you're in Christ or whether you're not as to what his relationship will be. And these men were in distance, a distance from him. They were in distress. Their city, which was a symbol of God's presence and recognition of them, was a desolation. And a heathen king was ruling them. And they realized there was no trifling with this God. The great and terrible God that keepeth covenant and mercy. That's a strange transition. He was a great and terrible God, one to be feared, but he was one to be trusted. Keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive, and thine ears, thine eyes open, that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee now, day and night, for the children of Israel thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee, both I and my father's house of sin. Now both Daniel and Nehemiah associate themselves personally with the sin of their people. He doesn't say, oh, they are a bad lot. He says, we are a bad lot. Now Daniel is picked out by God himself as an exemplary man. Though Job and Daniel and Noah stood before me, they should alone save themselves by their righteousness, said God. Daniel, yet he united himself. We have sinned. So Nehemiah takes the same line. We have dealt very corruptly against thee and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments, which thou commandest thy, to thy servant Moses. Remember, I beseech thee, the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, Now, fancy telling God to remember this. Isn't it strange? If ye transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. Ah, but that wasn't all. Nehemiah says, Surely, if God's going to remember to execute judgment, Will he not remember to execute mercy? So he goes on, And, or but, if ye turn unto me, and keep my commandments, and do them, though there were of you cast out unto the uttermost part of the heaven, yet will I gather them from thence, and will bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name there. Of course, that's why Jerusalem was so sacred in their eyes. It was a place where God said he would set his name there. Now these are thy servants, and thy people, whom thou hast redeemed by thy great power and by thy strong hand. That's looking back to the exodus from the oppression of Egypt. And now he says, look at them. O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant, and to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name, and prosper, I pray thee, thy servant this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. <coughs> now we have this man praying that God would prosper some project that he had in mind. First of all, one or two things before we turn the page to the few verses of the second chapter. You will notice the month Kislew is mentioned. And um, you will discover as you go through the Old Testament 
that the names of the month change. Uh, for instance, the, the month Abib, the book of Exodus, the month Abib is the month when the Passover has to be observed. But later on in the Old Testament it tells you to observe it in the month Nithan. Um, chapter 2 of Nehemiah, verse 1, and it came to pass in the month Nisan. Well, what's the connection between Nisan and Abib? Only this, that Abib was the name given when they first of all were the people speaking Hebrew. And then when they came under the domination of the Chaldeans and the Babylonians, they had to use the calendar of the month that was spoken there in their captivity. And the children that grew up they called it the new name, the same as any child would. And 70 years afterwards they came back and couldn't understand the Hebrew and could only understand the Babylonian. So that when we reach the pulpit of the open book, Ezra reads from the scroll of the Lord that had been discovered, but somebody stood by his side to interpret it and make the people understand the sense. So you see, that's a casual reference to the uh, an, an indication that it was perfectly true that this people had come under the domination of Babylon and Medo-Persia because of the very fact that such a thing as the number, the name of the month automatically changed to correspond with the heathen masters instead of their own. And you get added explanations too. Uh, for instance, if you'll turn to um, the book of Esther, which is the next book, there's three of these books go together, we shall discover, <coughs> Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. In the book of Esther, chapter 2, 16, So Esther was taken in unto King Ahasuerus into his house royal in the tenth month, in the tenth month, which is the month Tibet. Now, it's telling you there, they called it there the tenth month. And then they tell you it's a heathen name, Tibet. It's just one of those incidental little things that, that mark the truthfulness of the statement. Now, again, before we leave this point, there are critics who have said that Daniel couldn't have been written in the day when it was supposed to be because he knew too much. The very fact that what he prophesied became true, they said, was a proof that it wasn't true. So what can you do with people like that? And uh, yet, notice this. That when you open the book of Daniel, the first chapter is written in Hebrew. After you've got two or three verses down the next chapter, it says, Syriac. And the language changes and goes on, Syriac, until you get to the end of chapter 7. Then it goes back to Hebrew. So surely... Here's a period when the people could read both languages. Otherwise, half of it would be unintelligible. Now, just before that, when Sennacherib sent his emissary and started carrying on before all the people, I said, oh, oh, don't, don't, don't speak unto them in Hebrew, speak unto them in Syriac, because we don't want them to be intimidated. So, here was a time when Israel spoke Hebrew and didn't know Syriac. Now we come to this time afterwards, when they could all speak Syriac and didn't know Hebrew. And yet, Daniel is the one book that comes in the middle that spoke both. If that doesn't prove it was written at the very time it's supposed to be, what proof do you need? It's only because there's a desire to blot out these things from the book that a critic takes all that pains to prove just nothing. Well, 
there's other things beside that that we must see to. And, uh, as I said, Shushan the palace, which is mentioned here in the first chapter, has been excavated. Its stones have been discovered. The court has been completely cleared. And it was a magnificent place. And in that book of Esther, something was being done that was getting ready for the work that God had in front of Nehemiah. If you notice chapter 2, verse 1, this is where we are beginning, this is where, at the last verse, Nehemiah said, I was the king's cupbearer. Well, you'll see why that was in his mind. Today, it wouldn't mean so much. A butler at a person's table wouldn't be in danger of losing his head. Well, he might lose his head in a modern sense, but he would lose his head in a physical sense if he was suspected by his master. Because when you when you were the king's cupbearer, you had that king's life in your hands. If you could be bribed to poison that wine, the king was gone, wasn't he? And Nehemiah thought, he's only got to spot me and know that I'm upset. Before he asks any question, I should be gone. And you know, there's a modern instance, or a nearer modern instance. I remember reading, because I go back to the times before the Soviet Russia was in existence, when the Tsar Russia suddenly turned a corner in a corridor in the palace, and he shot an officer dead. Why? Because that officer was standing there smoking a cigarette, and as he saw the one come round the corner, he put his hand behind him. The Tsar never stopped to ask you what are you doing. He couldn't, not in those days. And Nehemiah lived in the same period. He thought, my life's in the hands. If he sees I'm troubled and worried, he won't ask me any questions. It'll be off with his head. Oh yes. So no wonder he prayed. And it says here, he was in that, and it came to pass in the month Nisan, in the twentieth year of Artaxerxes. Now Artaxerxes is not a proper name. It's simply an appellative, like Pharaoh. What is any amount of Pharaohs? Any amount of Tsars? Any amount of Shahs? Any amount of Kaisers? You see, all Kaiser and Tsar and Shah, they all mean similar words. They all mean a reigning monarch. And Artaxerxes simply meant the great king. You may remember that the Behistun stone has been discovered and translated, and the titles there to this king, great king, king of kings, oh yes, magnificent names. Artaxerxes the great king. Now by putting two and two together from this Houston rock which is right away standing on a cliff with all the pedigree of kings and their wars and what marvellous preservation for our present time we discover this that Artaxerxes was the husband of Esther. Now you know the book of Esther? The uh, Queen Vashti refused to be put on exhibition and uh, there was a general commotion among the princes. They said, what's going to happen if we don't do something about this? And Vashti was deposed. And then there was collected together a great number of young women and we are told that they were given cosmetics and bathings in in, uh, various other, I don't know what they had, for about a year, to get them ready to go into the presence of this king. And one of the most marvellous thoughts is, 
that they were given an option at the end of the time to select from the royal wardrobe whatever they liked to go in to fascinate the king. You imagine satins and silks and jewels and colours beyond dreams. And then Esther said, whatever you appoint me, I'll go. And you know, she was the one that eclipsed the lot of them. Because the hand of the Lord was in this. Mordecai, I said, you don't know whether you haven't been set apart for this. And if your life's in your hand, take it. And she did. And the king held out the royal scepter. And she became his queen. Now, do you know who her son was? His son was Cyrus. And Cyrus was the one who, who signed the petition to go back and give Ezra wood and metal and everything he wanted to build the temple. Do you mean to say God wasn't preparing for this emergency? So when you look at Nehemiah chapter 2, we'll just look down a little bit further um, before we um, go into this detail. Verse 6. And the king said unto me, the queen also sitting by him, that's in brackets. Do you see it? That's all it says. Does not say who the queen was. The queen sitting by him. But that was the mother of Cyrus. That was a Jewess sitting on the throne with the king of Persia. That's all it says. The queen sitting by him. And that turned the scale. So did you see events in our lives that seem to be humdrum or not very important, maybe just the very little thing that God is using for the great work that ultimately must be accomplished. And then when you look at this particular word, the queen, sitting by him, it's not the word that would be used by the Persians for a queen of their own people. It refers to a foreign queen, one that was not a Persian. So it's all leading in the same direction. Now then, and it came to pass in the month of Nisan in the twentieth year of Artaxerxes. And this date is a most important one. If we can discover what the date is, you know what we can do? We can peg down Daniel the ninth chapter. Do you remember what we read just now? That from the going forth of the commandment to rebuild and restore Jerusalem shall be seventy weeks. And then it's subdivided into two parts. 60 and 2 weeks, and the remaining 7. And then we discover that those weeks are not weeks of days, but weeks of years. And Christ, unto the Messiah, was the, from the building, of the, from the going forth of the commandment to rebuild the wall unto the Messiah, who should be cut off and have nothing, was just the fulfillment of those weeks. Then there comes a gap. Because Israel are no army, prophetic crop is stopped, but presently it will be resume again. And then the words that we read just now in Daniel, to finish transgression, to make an end of sin, to anoint the most holy, will all take place, as God had said. So you see, this is a critical moment. That woman sitting on the throne, and that edict to restore Jerusalem, was putting the date so that Daniel was going to be given by an archangel. That's the date to remember. Compute now the coming of the Messiah. And if the Messiah hasn't yet come, friends, he never can, according to Scripture. It's too far gone. I've told you before, 
I mentioned it again, that once, many years ago, I was standing down the back of Petticoat Lane, and I had a crowd of people listening to me. It was rather asking for trouble, and I got it sometimes. But in this particular case, I didn't. I was interrupted by a little Jew. He said, Ah, that is in your Protestant Bible, it's not in ours. So I said to him, Well, I'm only struggling with the Hebrew. I, all I can read is the English at the moment. Have you got a Hebrew Bible? He said, Yes. I said, Where is it? I've got it at all. I said, How long will it take you to get it? Five minutes. So I said to the crowd, Shall we wait? Of course, I said, Yes. And sure enough, he came back with a Bible nearly as big as himself. Old Bible. I said, Now you find Daniel the ninth chapter and that particular verse and read that verse out to the crowd. And he found it. Yakoresh Mishiach Lo. What's that? Messiah, Mashiach. Messiah should be cut off and have nothing. He looked at me and said, I've never read that before. And I said, while you let your rabbi tell you never to read Isaiah 53, never to read Daniel 9, never to read this and that, you never will. And for a moment there was a perfect silence in that busy place, just for a moment. Then the hubbub started again, and I was for it. But there it is. That's a critical bit, you see. And here it is being worked out in front of our eyes. A king on his throne, a woman who risked her life at the command of an uncle Mordecai because of the position of the people of Israel. A son born to her who should ultimately be Cyrus, whom Ezra speaks about as sending him back to rebuild. Will you turn just a few pages back to the opening verse of Ezra? The opening verses of chapter 1. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoso remaineth in any place where he sojourneth, let the men of his place help him with silver, and with gold, and with goods, and with beasts, beside the free will offering for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. That's Cyrus, the son of Esther, who sat upon the throne when Nehemiah presented his petition before God. So we're back again to Nehemiah chapter 2. I've read this so many times, I don't like to read it again, but I must. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of Artaxerxes the king, that wine was before him. And I took up the wine, and gave it unto the king. Now, I had not been the time sad in his presence, Wherefore the king said unto me, Why is thy countenance sad, seeing thou art not sick? This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. Then I was very sore afraid. Of all the men in the scriptures that you would say was a man who had no fear, it's Nehemiah. But don't you believe it, friends? The person who hasn't got any fear 
He's not a brave person at all. I always like to think of a captain whose knees were knocking together just before the order. He said to his knees, if you knew where I'm going to make you take me presently, you knock together a bit more. That's a brave man, friends. And Nehemiah doesn't mind putting down in black and white. I was sore afraid. I was sore afraid. Isn't it wonderful then, though you were sore afraid, he went through with it? Yes. That's what God can do for you and for me. I've got great sympathy with the Apostle Paul in this sense, that God broke the silence and said to him in a vision, Fear not, Paul, I will not let anybody set upon you and hurt you in this city. See, that was a little bit that Paul was rather... I think Paul would have stood up against anybody with regard to arguing about the Scriptures, but to have a real set to and a scuffle, I think he shrank from it. Well, I'm like that. Here's a man says, I was so afraid. But he said unto the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my countenance be sad when the city, the place of my father's sepulchres, lies waste and the gates thereof are consumed with fire? Then the king said unto me, for what dost thou make request? Now here's the quickest prayer that's ever been prayed, I think. We've got some strange prayers in the scriptures. I suppose the strangest prayer meeting, if you're going to have one man praying in a prayer meeting or place of prayer, was Jonah. In the belly of a great fish, he prayed. And here's a man. In the ordinary way, this man would have adopted the attitude of prayer. He would have kneeled on his knees. He would have bowed in the presence of God. He would have used the proper term. But this man never shut his eyes, never put his hands together, never went on his knees. In fact, nobody heard what he said except God. It says here, So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said unto the king, like that, straight away. That's prayer, friends. I remember reading recently in an account of someone who was preaching, I think in a, I don't know whether it was in New York, somewhere over there, that the reporter said, he made the finest prayer that had ever been put before an American congregation. Well, you might say an English congregation anywhere. Some prayers are like that. And just as it says in Hamlet, such prayers to heaven never go. This was the essence of prayer. There's one of the Psalms, when my heart is overwhelmed, I will cry unto thee from the ends of the earth. Cry. Cry. It's a baby's word. And a baby doesn't utter, not grammatically, but the mother doesn't have to get a book out. It immediately, she immediately responds to the cry. That's prayer. And here's the man. I prayed unto the Lord and I said unto the king, if it please the king, and if thy servant have found favour, in thy sight, that thou wouldest send me unto Judah, unto the city of my father's sepulchres, that I may build it. That was his request. Now what's going to happen? If the king says no, well he's out of countenance. You don't know what might happen to him. Then comes the bit in brackets. The queen also sitting by him. Doesn't say she said anything. Doesn't say she nudged him. She was sitting there. That's God telling you. I put that woman there, said God. 
I brought Nehemiah and that king and that woman together at that critical moment. And he'll do it for you and me, friends, if his purpose demands it. He's done it more than once. Always the same God. That's why this is written for our guidance. So he says, And the king said unto me, the queen also sitting by him, For how long should, oh, what a relief it must have been. He's simply asking how long am I asking time off? You see, the whole thing's conceded. For how long shall thy journey be? And when wilt thou return? Is a king asking him? That's what God can do, friends. Ah, so it pleased the king to send me. And I set him a time. He said, went through it. The king, he said, well, it's going to take so long to get all things together. It'll take so long to go there. And the place is in an awful state. It'll take so long to build it. And he got time. That's what God can do with those who seek his glory and seek to serve and trust him. Well, that's the preface. When we meet together next time, we shall see what Nehemiah did. We shall see what others attempted to do. We shall see how he was upheld. We shall see how he dealt with certain circumstances. And I have a feeling that we shall discover that in any Christian work you do today, you'll be continually coming up against circumstances when a knowledge of Nehemiah will be just as important as a knowledge of Romans or Ephesians. I have found it so. And I trust you will find it so. Sandalot and Tobiah and Geshem and all the lot with their open letters and their intimidating words and their, dis- their despising of the work and whatnot and all their smoothing it down and what's all going on continuously. So may the Lord give us to come to his word and realise it's been written for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God might be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. We have already, by reading the first chapter, and by you reading Daniel the ninth chapter, we have seen how much they have in common. I've just got down here seven items, which I will repeat before we bring this meeting to a close. Seven items that occur in Nehemiah's prayer and occur in Daniel the ninth chapter. Because you see, this unanimity of these two men that hadn't met And the fact that they used the same expression and they were led in the same direction is an indication that the hand of God was leading them both. They both speak of the restoration and the state of Jerusalem. That's the burden. In both cases it says they were moved to tears, to fasting and to prayer. One was moved by reading the prophet Jeremiah. The other was moved by a report brought by a man named Hananiah. Two different names, two different methods. One said, it is desolate. The other read that the desolations were limited and the time was nearly up for the 70 years and so he prayed from two points of view. Both refer to God as terrible and dreadful because they were conscious that this judgment, which was a severe one, had come from a God who was terrible and dreadful if you departed from covenant relations with him. But he was a God who remembered covenant and mercy. And in both, you remember, made a personal confession. 
They didn't isolate themselves. They were involved as their people were involved. And they both referred to something that God had said by his servant Moses. So there's a link between what God said he would do and what they're confessing in his presence he did. And I think they took courage as we might. If God will keep his word in judgment, how much more shall we believe him if he says he will keep his word in mercy? Now there was one word mentioned by Daniel where it says he would watch over his word. Now that's an echo from the prophet Jeremiah. And in the first chapter of Jeremiah, God, speaking about Babylon, says to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, what do you see? Oh, he said, I see the rod of an almond tree. And now version says, God said, and so will I watch over my word to perform it. But he said, what's the connection between an almond tree and watching? Oh, that's because we don't know. We're speaking English. You see, the almond tree, even in this country, comes out almost the first of any tree to burst into blossom. You know, when you're scooting along the road to catch the 815, you suddenly stop and miss the train, all oh, the pink blossom over that wall. The almond tree. And it was called an arbinger. It was called a watcher, a, a sentinel, that spring was on the way. And God said, just as surely as you've seen a watcher tree, I'll watch over my word to perform it. That's in chapter 1. And I'll set thee to pull down to destroy. Then later on, I think it is in chapter 31, he says, just as I have watched over my word to pull down and to destroy, so will I watch over my word to restore. God does both. And these men recognized it. They didn't divide God up into two departments. And so we have this preface to a book, which I trust will be a little bit different from our usual studies, but nevertheless prove to be a word in season and help us to realize how needful it is for us to watch and to safeguard that good deposit that the Lord has entrusted to us.